0: I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 119, and we're going to be looking at a new stanza. And uh, since we begin a new stanza, our practice has been to invite one of you who are memorizing the psalm to come up and uh, try your hand at reciting it for us. And so this morning, uh, our special guest is my wife, Sherry. So Sherry's going to come and recite these eight verses for us. and he's going to watch make sure I don't cheat. (laughs) I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. I recounted my ways and you answered me. Teach me your decrees. Let me understand the teaching of your precepts. Then I will meditate on your wonders. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me through your law. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Thank you, dear. Uh, You will notice that... uh, she quoted from the NIV, uh, for which there will be eternal judgment. But but, uh, actually it worked out pretty well because of the way the NIV translates the passage um, is right in line with where I want to end this morning. But we do have a new stanza in front of us, uh, a new set of verses to be encouraged by, to be instructed by, And my prayer has been that God will do just that in your heart this morning as we look into these precious words. I'm certain you will have noticed, if not from the reading of those eight verses to the entire service to this point that we're dealing uh, with a theme of discouragement and uh, difficulty, sorrow. Uh, And of course, this, this idea, discouragement, sorrow. comes in all forms and different weight. Uh, It's something that all, if not most of us, experience from time to time, maybe even this morning. But I'd like to this morning speak to you about not just the mild form of discouragement that you may feel because you only got 20 likes on your Facebook post, um, but uh, the kind of discouragement that can actually upend a life, that can actually turn into deep darkness and misery, despair, hopelessness, losing productivity, losing the will to live, maybe even losing the belief that God is love. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to that dark place where you experience these things just like the psalmist has described? Uh, My soul clings to the dust. I mean, how much lower can it get? Um, verse twenty eight my soul melts for sorrow you say well i 'm not sure i 've ever been there. Well, uh, wait long enough you will. There'll be a time in your life when this the words of the psalmist are your words if you haven 't already experienced them. Many of you I know have experienced those words personally, and so I would like to I would like to uh, speak to you from this Very useful text this morning. And to begin, I'm going to read from the ESV translation, the first four verses, which will be the focus of our sermon. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. So the psalmist's here condition is obviously perilous. Uh, his poem, though, is written for us. His poem, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was designed to be a ministry to you this morning. Because you may find yourself right where this psalmist is, in the midst of darkness. From these few words, I want you to see how a godly person deals with discouragement and how an ungodly person can have hope. So let's look first at these words of discouragement seen particularly in verse 25 and 28. His soul clings to the dust. If you haven't thought about that much, it, it is the lowest place a soul can be other than death. It is a dark place, a lowly place, a discouraging place. And to say that two, verse, three verses later, that his soul melts away for sorrow. This guy is in bad shape, right? It's obvious to see. Of course, his words are metaphorical, describing the case of a person who's been defeated in battle, maybe even, and is finding himself laying face down with no hope of survival. Every which way he looks is darkness and no light. And so these metaphorical words really are, are describing a, a, a condition of his soul that, is impacting him physically. Uh, no matter what he tries to do, he just feels hopeless. Can you relate to that? Why is this man so depressed? What are the causes behind your discouragement? Maybe what you've felt, what you've experienced behind your depression, your sadness? your overwhelming sorrow as the sea billows roll, as the song mentions? Uh, well, I think there are there are two possibilities. And the first is this, it, it's his sorrow, I think, could have come from his inward condition. Just like your discouragement, your sorrow may come from your inward condition. Um, and that inward condition is described for us in these two verses, 25 and 28. And I want to give you some potential reasons for this kind of sorrow, this kind of hopelessness, even to be experienced by a believer. You know, you can say, well, Christians don't have that kind of deep sorrow. Well, actually, they do. Uh, We see this in the life of Jesus. We see this in the life of Paul, David, Moses. Many writers in Scripture experienced a discouragement, a despair that could be described as depression, So here are some reasons that may affect these feelings. Spiritual lethargy. That is sinful decline in your spiritual life. A loss of interest in church. A loss of interest in spiritual Christian friends. A a loss of interest in reading your Bible. No interest whatsoever in spending any time in prayer. Except when you're late for work and asking God to keep the lights green. So we have this the struggle uh, in our lives that, that help us, that don't help us, but cause us to drift from that place of joy, that, that play, place of purpose, into this place of darkness. Um, and you stand in front of the mirror, knowing your condition, and you look at yourself and you say, what is the matter with you? Why can't you get any encouragement here? Why can't you get out of bed on time? Why can't you read your Bible? can't?" And you have these kind of conversations with the person in the mirror. Another reason for this inward condition is worldly distraction. You know, sometimes our lives get so busy that the things of the Lord, the things of the Spirit, the things of the Word kind of get shuffled off the front burner. And it's not like you're doing a bunch of wrong things, but you're just so busy That that the world, your life, your job consumes you, and the next thing you know, it's been quite a while since you've had any really deep spiritual interaction with God. And this is common. It's really spiritual ADD syndrome, attention deficit disorder, spiritual attention deficit disorder. It's very sad with two Ds. And then we have, of course, the result of all this is maybe a lost love for God, which the Ephesian church experienced in the book of Revelation. They lost their first love, that thing that the believer loses when they get distracted by the world or or distracted by sin or experiencing some kind of spiritual lethargy, a, a lack of love for God. You see, friends, there's there's nothing more discouraging to someone who's trying to follow Christ, who wants to to be in fellowship with God, than to be in a long or losing battle with sin or be unable to shake this spiritual laziness that we struggle with. That's discouraging to the believer, even even to the point of describing it like the psalmist has. The psalmist in, in chapter 88 says it like this, "'For my soul is full of trouble.'" My life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one who set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those who you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Is that a description of you? Or has that been a description of you? It certainly is of the psalmist in in 119. He's undone. His soul is clinging to the dust. It's melting away with sorrow. Paul experienced this also, it seems, in in writing the book of Romans, chapter 7. After describing his struggle with sin, he says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I can't take it anymore is Paul's cry to God. But it's not just an inward condition that may create these kind of experiences and feelings. It's also outward circumstances. And we've talked about this quite a bit as we've tried to describe the life of a sojourner. You you remember that this stanza describes what it would be like for someone who follows Jesus, someone who views this world as a temporary arrangement, someone who is pursuing God's agenda, not their own agenda, a sojourner, if if they if they are pursuing God, if they are standing for and with God, they will take abuse from the world who opposes him. Which will create these emotions, sadness, sorrow, despair, discouragement. If a Christian's determined to live for Jesus, they're going to experience the same scorn and contempt that he did, which will bring on sorrow. This is what Peter, Paul, James, Jesus, many Old Testament prophets taught. For those who follow God, there's hardship, discouragement. You remember when, when David was run out of Jerusalem by his rebellious son? Do you remember that story? Uh, for no fault of his own, other than maybe some poor parenting? David experienced this, second Samuel 15:30. But David went up the ascent of Mount Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. That was his external circumstances were causing this kind of sorrow, this kind of darkness. that was physically affecting David. And so these reasons for this discouragement and sorrow uh, come from internal and external realities. And some of them we, we have no control over, like the death of a friend or a loved one, um, the, the, the decline of your own personal health, desperate financial need, the, the, the actions of a wayward child. All these are possible reasons behind the sorrow the psalmist is describing, and, and certainly what you and I will experience. So these four verses, 25 through 28, we see discouragement coming from internal and external sources, Um, and there are many reasons a soul will cling to the dust and and melt away in sorrow. Your, your, Your experience may be a little bit different, but I think your emotions, if you're honest, will have been very similar to what's been described. And so I want to show you what we do about it. If all of us are going to experience this kind of thing at some time or another, and if you have not yet been down that road, please pay attention because you will. These verses give us a godly way to deal with discouragement, um, no matter what their source. And these verses, of course, are written in such a way that, that it requires us to consider the two alternative ways to deal with discouragement, because there are two alternatives, and they're obvious. Let me, let me show them to you. Let's look at these words of the discouraged. So just as there are many ways that you can become discouraged, there are at least two ways that you can respond to it or deal with it. And I'm going to get to the God-honoring way here in a minute. But first, let me talk about the self-directed approach. Look at verse 26. He says this, <clears throat> When I told of my ways, you answered me. Now look how he contrasts his own ways. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I'll meditate on your wondrous works. So I think there is an intended double use of words here, or double meaning. The first is my ways versus your ways, God. My solutions versus your solutions. This is a self-directed approach to dealing with sorrow and discouragement. Um, the author, I think, may have been trying to tell God or anyone who might listen of his plans to write to his own ship, to, to alleviate his own sorrow. This is, this is my plan, this is what worked before, I'm gonna do it again. And I think this is a way that the Holy Spirit is letting the reader know that we have a tendency to pursue our own solutions to our spiritual problems. When you're discouraged, where do you turn, for example? When you're experiencing deep sorrow and darkness on every side, what is your solution? What's been your remedy for those things? So, when you're discouraged, where do you turn is the question this passage is answering and helping us with. And I think it's important that you know that it's not wrong to go through seasons of sorrow. It's okay, and I think, and I'll get to this in a moment, but I think our seasons of sorrow are designed by God for specific purposes. But we all go through them. Jesus went through them. Paul went through them. Moses, David, Job. All these men of faith went through these kind of things. God ordains, listen closely, God ordains your discouragement. He intends us to struggle with sorrow. But one common strategy that we have to deal with our own sorrow is to repress it, to, to put discouragement under the rug and, and pretend it's not there. Of course, this strategy is like trying to start a fire in a fireplace with a closed flue. That doesn't work out too well, does it? Everybody in the room begins to choke, just like when you try to suppress your own sorrow. It's just a heaviness in the room that everybody knows about, but nobody wants to talk about. It's it's suffocating. Another common strategy is to submerge or to hide or try to exchange our sorrow for something happier, some earthly things that, may help us forget what we're dealing with. I think this is a big reason why entertainment is so popular in our culture. When there's a hint of discouragement or sorrow in our lives, what do we do generally? We, we seek some form of, dis- of distraction to disguise it from us, from ourselves. Puritans would call this idea of entertainment a diversion or an amusement. And you know what musing is, right? When you muse on something, you're thinking about it. When you put the letter A in front of the word amusement, it is amusement, not thinking. And so when we pursue amusement, and there's nothing inherently wrong with amusement, but when we pursue amusement, not thinking, to deal with our sorrow, it it disrupts God's plan and purpose for the sorrow in your life. Commenting on this, Thomas Manton said the following, In troubles of spirit, we are not to quench our thirst at the next ditch, but to run to the fountain of living water, not to take up with ordinary comforts that is an attempt to break prison and to get out of our troubles before God let us out. You see see what's happening here? Do you see our strategy and the problem with it? Running from the true and only source of hope and remedy for sorrow to a worldly solution is a sure way to continue in that state of despair. Oh, there might be some temporary relief, certainly. But in terms of dealing with the root of your sorrow and the root of your despair and discouragement, nothing changes. This is why we keep adding more amusement, more entertainment. To try to push out anything that is hurtful. That's one way that this passage makes us think about dealing with sorrow, the self-directed way. But the way that I think that the author wants us to conclude on or to rest on is the God-directed way. I want you to notice this in verse 26. Let me read verse 26 again with, I think, the primary intent. It's the the idea of taking his concerns in the form of confession to a God who's listening. Look at verse 26 again. When I told them my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. So experiencing the agony of hopelessness and discouragement seems unbearable to the one that's in it. But let me remind you of the silver lining that is there, in case you're experiencing it currently. When your soul is clinging to the dust and melting away in sorrow, and it doesn't move you Godward, that's the sure mark of being an unbeliever who is dead in sin, dead to God. And so running to amusements, running to distractions, is really the only option to someone who doesn't know God. On the other hand, when we know the plague of our own heart, when we when we understand the misery we're in and where it came from, and then we believe in and apply the God's, rem- God's remedy, rather, it is a joyful and clear evidence that we do know God. And so there is a silver lining in our discouragement, in our sorrow. And that is, it pushes us Godward, right? And and that's what my point is, is that the best and only actual remedy is to run to God, not worldly things. When you humbly come to Christ acknowledging your sin, acknowledging your need, acknowledging your condition, you can expect to be met with an answer. You answered me, the psalmist said in verse 26. This approach to God proves that you know your own spiritual condition and you're not blind to the real struggle and in the, in the real pain that you're experiencing. And our confessions that we make to God, those things when we, that we bring our heart and lay it out to God, th- those are not meant to make God aware of our condition. Those are not meant to make God aware of our sin. He's all-knowing. God doesn't need us to explain our circumstances to him as if he doesn't know them. The purpose of confession, the purpose of of bearing your soul to God, as it were, is is to remind us of the seriousness of our sin and the only place of the remedy. That is the point, to go to that fountain of renewal. That's why when the liturgist on Sunday morning gets up here and reminds us of our sin and asks us to confess them, always follows up with a beautiful remedy. And that is the pardon of sin issued by God himself to all who will confess. You see, the only true and lasting solution to our discouragement is to take all of that to God and lay it at his feet. This is what the psalmist has done. He told God about his sorrow He told God about his discouragement and depression. He took his sin to the only source of healing and believed that God would act. This is important to understand, friends, especially if you're in a dark place or if you know somebody who is. The solution, and by the way, if you want to counsel somebody who is in a dark place, the solution isn't handing them the sunday comics that that's not the solution the solution is not distracting them to by going on a hike or buying them something or bringing home a rose as nice as that all those things may be that is not god's intended means of addressing sorrow You see, there's an important difference between those who complain of their sorrowful and discouraging condition and those who will take it to the Lord. Everyone complains about it. Everyone is dissatisfied with it. But those who know God actually take those things to God. They don't try to bury them. They don't try to disguise them. They take them to God as they are in all their rawness. Running to him is the sure cure for our woes. And I think that's what regenerated people do. Charles Bridges said this, it's not the complaint of sickness, but an application to the physician that advances the recovery of the patient. We do not usually expect to better our condition by mourning over its badness or merely wishing for its improvement. Nor is it the confession of sin, but the application to the great physician that marks genuine contrition before God. You see, the answer isn't simply in telling God about it. It's claiming the promises that he'll forgive those who come. God is not just a sounding board. He's a healer. He's called the great physician for a reason. Coming empty-handed is critical. And what I mean by that is, is not coming as if there's nothing wrong. It's coming with no excuses. It's coming acknowledging your human need. It's coming acknowledging that you have strayed. It's coming acknowledging that you're in deep pain, in darkness, and can't see the light. It's coming with nothing but your issue. It's critically important. In fact, I think it's a sign of non-repentance to come to God with excuses as to why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. One of the best ways to catch the eye of God is to re- reveal to him your true wounds and your deep inability. When I was a young boy, I think nine or ten years old, my dad, we lived in Quito, Ecuador, a large city in South America. It had a lot of poor people in it. And one day my dad took me with him, and we came across this beggar that that my dad was familiar with, and I think this is the reason my dad took me. Uh, And we began talking with this beggar, and this beggar offered to show us his home. And so we followed him around the corner, and his home, he showed us, was a cardboard box under a public staircase. He took us to his home. He showed us his wounds as clearly as possible in hopes of receiving some blessing and it worked for him my dad responded brought him to our home and bathed him and did all sorts of things that he needed done fed him clothed him because we personally saw the man's need and so when you come to God The last thing that he wants to hear from you is your self-sufficiency. Right? It's not a good plan. If you're looking for a handout to show the person who's got the money, show them as much as you got. Unless it's nothing. Let's hear some words of hope from this passage. Whether your sorrow and discouragement are are rooted in self-inflicted circumstances or your battle with sin or, or circumstances completely outside your control. Uh, there's hope for those who will find their relief in God's grace. And we, we see that here in these verses. And the first I've already alluded to, and it's seen there in verse 26, he said, when I told them my ways, you answered me. God, God not only listens to our complaints, and has pity on our inability, he answers. He responds graciously. And as it relates to sin, and I know all sorrow and and discouragement doesn't necessarily relate to sin in your life. I mentioned already some things outside your control that that may bring on sorrow. But as it relates to sin, 1 John 1, 9 is, is one of our favorite verses, isn't it? If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He answers you when you call upon him. Friends, did you know that your relationship with God is simply one prayer away from being renewed? With one prayer of humble and genuine confession, your relationship with God can be restored to its rightful and healthy place. And I'm not talking about a 15 minute prayer. I'm simply talking about a 30 second, 15 second call for help. Even if you've never taken your sin to God, you've never even realized that He was interested and anxious like He, like, Jesus talked of, of the prodigal son's father who was anxious to see his son come home and ran to him when he came. That, that's God's attitude towards anyone who will come with an attitude of humble repentance, a contrition of heart. Even if you've never realized that before and you, you come for the first time, there, there is rejoicing in heaven, Jesus said. And in a, a, an anxious father to forgive, those who will simply come. Jesus said, I will never cast you out if you'll just but come. Even after a season of sin, even, even those of us who have known God and His love and, and are familiar with His character of goodness and grace and steadfast love, and we've still sinned against that and, and want, run our own way and, and pursued our own agenda versus His, even With that, a single prayer empowered by the Holy Spirit with a heart of contrition can reverse all the spiritual depression, all the weight of guilt, all the hopelessness of your conscience and your circumstances and renew it. This is the power of God. He answered me. This is an indication that God accepts, calls for help from his children. And then I want you to see the next words of hope. You'll see them two or three times, just in these four verses. In fact, you'll see them four times in these four verses. And you'll see them 172 times in these 176 verses. You know what the theme is of Psalm 119, right? The importance of God's word. All right, so your word... It are words of hope. These, these two simple words, your word, in what we see here in this passage, uh, in verse 25, your word. In verse 26, your statutes. In verse 27, your precepts. In verse 28, your word. is repeated 172 times in this psalm for a reason. It's the only source of hope for those following Jesus. That's what this text is about. These words remind us of of what this whole chapter is about. They remind us of the only place of sure hope, of relief from our sorrow, of, of, of relief of our guilt and discouragement. It's found in the Word of God. That's why this poem reads, give me life. What kind of life? The life that your Word has promised. Give me understanding. What kind of understanding? The kind your precepts promise. Strengthen me. How? According to your word, according to the promises of your word. You see, these are the things that, that God is, is desiring for us to experience. These are the, th- the places where God is calling us to spend time, and he's given us the faith that takes hold of these promises in the scriptures that we read and that are in front of us this morning. Friends, this book contains all the answers to our sorrow and darkness and discouragement. Are you discouraged over your sin? This book contains your sure assurance of pardon Are you discouraged over what others have done to you? It reminds you of the one who sticks closer than a brother. Are you concerned about the unfair treatment you received from your coworkers? This first reminds you that you have a savior who has walked that path before you and knows exactly what you're experiencing and promises strength if you'll trust in him. Friends, it's in this word where we find the balm for our wounded souls. It's where we find hope. Hebrews chapter ten, verse twenty-three says this, let us hold fast to the hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. It's in the word where we find comfort in our sadness, according to First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter one, verses five through eight. In Psalm 119, verse 32, you'll see it at the end of this very stanza. Look in your Bible at it. It says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And we're going to get there in a few weeks to talk about what that means. But this morning, you heard Sherry quote Psalm 119, 32, the same verse in the NIV version. And this is where I want to rest. I will run in the path of your commands. Why? Because you have set my heart free. Free from what? Sorrow, guilt, darkness, hopelessness, discouragement. Friends, we have a God who will listen. We have a a loving and gracious God who's given us his word and directs us to it as the source of our hope. And, And let me end with these points of application. If it is true that God not only allows us to fall into deep discouragement, but actually ordains it, plans sorrow for you and for me, if God does that, and then in a little bit, after some thrashing around and, and, and misery, we, we find our way back to him, and, and he gives us the remedy, the, the solution in his word through Christ and his Holy Spirit, why the drama? Why don't you just skip the whole discouragement thing and move on with the Christian life? If he starts it and then ends it and crosses everything in between, why well, have it? Let's just skip it. It'd be better for me, right? We think. Not so. There is a purpose to your sorrow, there is a reason. God takes you down the road of discouragement and leaves you there longer than you're comfortable. Listen to these biblical reasons. The first is to correct and instruct us. Now, I know most of you need very little correction, and all of you know a lot. But for those who need correction and instruction, this is what this book does for us, We're in Psalm 119, turn the page, one page, and you'll see verses 67 and 71. Let me read those for you, in light of this conversation. 67 says, before I was afflicted with sadness, with sorrow, with discouragement. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, I wandered off on my own path. But now, now that I've experienced discouragement and sorrow, look what happens. I keep your word. I've learned how to be obedient. I've learned how to walk with Christ. Why? Because you put me through sorrow. Look at verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted. It's good that I was sorrowful and and almost strangled by this discouragement. Why? That I might learn your statutes. You see, sorrow was designed by God to sharpen us and instruct us in godly living. It teaches, to, to, it teaches us to lean on only God, to lean on his word. And this is the primary function of discouragement. It helps us see the importance of not only relying uh, on, on God, but not relying on the world. Having God be our first place, as, as Manton said, the first stop when we get a drink. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians about this idea of correction and instruction. For we do, not, you, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He was going through some sorrow himself. For we were utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. This guy was depressed, the Apostle Paul. Why, Why did God allow this in Paul's life? But but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's why Paul went through it. That's why you go through it. Friends, listen closely. Discouragement and sorrow is your friend. Listen to the second reason we go through it, to humble us. Evidently, we need a lot of humbling. Humbling right? If your life is like mine. In Second Corinthians, Paul tells us why. To keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, if you were a, a brilliant Bible scholar, what would you say the reason that Paul was afflicted with sorrow? He says it at the beginning and at the end of this one verse. To keep me humble. <laughs> to keep me from being conceited. Paul thinks it's so important that he says it twice in one sentence. It's a sandwich. The reason you have sorrow is because you'll become conceited if you don't have it. And you'll be not humble if you don't have it. And we all need humility. God loves the humble person. He resists the proud. Thirdly, to conform us to Christ. You know that this is the will of God, right? I mean, the scriptures speak of this often. Paul comes out and just says it in Romans 8 29. It is the will of God that you be conformed to Jesus Christ. (laughs) It doesn't get any more plain than that. And what was Jesus? A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus actually had to be taught to depend on his heavenly Father. He actually had to learn that. He had to learn to embrace the presence of the Holy Spirit, to lean on the promises of the Word of God, as everyone who's become like Christ must learn. Fourth, to cause us to pray. Do you ever notice how you become a prayer warrior when things get tough? Yeah. My prayer life has really been, in, really been improving lately here. I just really enjoy it. Oh man, it's been such a blessing. Well, what's been going on in your life? Tell me why this is the case. Listen to this verse from the psalmist, Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths, I cry to you. Not out of the heights, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. When do we run to him in prayer? It's not when things are going hunky-dory. It's when things are sad, discouraging, and seemingly hopeless. That's when we run to God in prayer. Thomas Manton, again, says this. Afflictions summon us to his presence. Calamities, rather... Afflictions summon us to his presence. God sends a tempest after us just as, as after Jonah. Now that trouble which chases us to God is so far a sanctified trouble. So you know what trouble does is it chases you to the presence of God. Like the angry dog chases the little boy back into his house. That's where the safety is. And then finally, God allows struggle, sorrow, discouragement, despair into our lives. Not only allows it, he ordains it, he plans it in order to bless us. It is actually a vehicle of blessing. Listen to how the psalmist said it happened for him. Psalm 71, you who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. That doesn't come unless you've been in those dark places, friends. You don't know the blessing and joy of God's comfort, of God's peace, until you've had the opposite. You don't know the the blessing of grace until you've recognized your sin This is what Paul said about it in Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How can you rejoice in your sufferings, Paul? Well, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And then he goes on, endurance, hope, and so forth. All these virtues of the Christian life are produced by what, James says? James 1, struggle, difficulty, hardship, sorrow. So instead of escaping the prison, as Manton says, and trying to get out of your sorrow, trying to fill up your life with things that will distract you from that, embrace it as a gift from God, which it is. And of course, this is countercultural and not easy, which requires a family of God to be around you, to remind you of these things continually. You see, the Christian life is about bringing glory to God and becoming like His Son, Jesus Christ. And you know how we glorify God? By becoming like his son. That's how it happens. That's how you bring the most glory to God, by becoming like Jesus. And the only way you'll become like Jesus is if you experience what he did. Sorrow, discouragement, darkness. Friends, are you discouraged this morning? Do you know someone who is? There's hope. Great hope. There's hope in bringing nothing to God but our sorrow and our pain because He is a merciful God that's moved by the pitiful condition of us, His ailing children. There's hope. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm 69, verse 29, I'm I'm inflicted and in pain, let your salvation, O God, set me on high. There's hope in knowing that God is the one who's doing the work. We don't have to be concerned that somehow or another God isn't seeing this right now. I'm getting a little anxious. He doesn't know this is happening to me. God, are you there? You see, God's steadfast love is the very thing that's causing your sorrow. His love is the source of your discouragement and the source of the solution. His faithful wisdom knows exactly what we need and how much we can endure. His omnipotency, his, his endless power is able to rescue, it, rescue us at just the right time. So, so God, in his perfect wisdom and perfect love and complete power, has got this. We can trust him. And all we need to do is submit. Submit to what God's doing in our lives. Let's pray.